Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Trial of a New Society by Justice Ebert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Industrial Democracy Triumphs in Court. Time decides all things. At last, after months of delay, September 29, 1912, the day of the utter Giovanniti Caruso trial arrives. The old red brick courthouse in the Gore Park on Federal Street, Salem, Massachusetts, is besieged. Three hundred and fifty venirmen have been called. Fifty newspaper men and women are present from all parts of the country. All the big news-gathering associations are represented. Friends and sympathizers and workmen's committees, appointed to see justice done, are on hand. A large number of the curious mix with the interested and help swell the throng. All crowd about the entrance, seeking admission, which is only secured by card. The roll of carriages is heard, two draw up. An aisle of spectators is formed from the curb to the courthouse, with the police and deputy sheriffs in front. Out of the first carriage step Etter and Giovanniti, shackled together, and followed by deputies. Both wear blue suits, Windsor ties, and woolen shirts, and slouch hats. The crowds greet them with cheer upon cheer to which they smile in return, while the police hustle back the surging mass, amid the click of the cameras of the newspaper photographers and the moving picture men. Out of the second carriage steps Caruso, shackled to a deputy sheriff. He is attired in a cap, checked trousers, cutaway coat, and white shirt. His face shows more color and less prison pallor than those of his comrades. Caruso is also greeted by the crowd and the activity of the picture-takers, all three ascend the steps of the brownstone portico and enter the courthouse. At last the climax approaches. In the courthouse all is subdued and tense. The newspapers from Boston, Salem, Lawrence, and the principal towns of Essex County are displaying big headlines featuring the general strike news from Lawrence, Haverhill, Lynn, Quincy, and other points in New England, in contrast with which are also big headlines featuring the beginning of the trial. Among the sensational items is a rumor of a march on Salem from the general strike centers. Despite the rules forbidding the reading of newspapers in the courtroom, they are stealthily read. Where this is not the case, they bulge from the pockets of the venirmen, with every indication of careful perusal. Though all is still on the surface, there is much subdued excitement. Every newcomer in the courtroom is anxiously interrogated about the latest news regarding the general strike. In brief, the atmosphere of the courtroom is surcharged with a feeling of gravity, of a social drama in which much is at stake. The court is late in opening. All the venirmen, newspaper folks, court officials, and prisoners are in readiness long before it is necessary. They have ample time to discuss or write up the unusual situation, which they do with quiet restraint and much material, or they take stock of the big, square, white room, with its big windows and plenty of light. At the back is the judge's bench, flanked in the rear by a small library of law books, above which is a mediocre painting of a chief justice, undoubtedly worthy of honor but unknown to all but a few present. Before the judge's bench is a square enclosure. This contains tables for the clerk of the court and his assistants, and for the district attorney. At the sides are also tables for the defense and the greater part of the press. In this square... Toward the rear of the room, and directly facing the judge, is the infamous prisoner's pen, 
immortalized by Giovanniti in a most powerful poem called The Cage, and written in Salem Prison. The Cage is a bronze latticework compartment, open only above the waist in front, with a bench for seating purposes, and guarded by four deputy sheriffs. All along the walls, outside of the square described, are benches, carefully arranged. Those to the left of the judge, next to the witness stand, are reserved for the jury. The remainder are filled with venirmen, court officials, police, reporters, and the few spectators who were influential enough to get by the guards at the door. At last Sheriff Johnson, gold-tipped staff in hand, cries out, The court! All present at this signal arise, more according to long-imposed custom than to actual deference. The crier calls out, Hear ye! Hear ye! and bids all who have business there to draw near, and they shall be heard. After which ancient mummery, repeated at the opening and close of every session from day to day, the court is seated, and the audience follows, unlike the equals before the law with all men that they are alleged to be. The play at, quote, law and order, unquote, where no, quote, law and order, unquote, is needed, except in the interests of oppression, is now in full swing but not without the presence of those social influences from which legality pretends to detach itself in an impartial and dispassionate manner, as we shall soon see. The play is continued for almost two months, with some interruptions, mainly of labor's creation, as we shall again see. Judge Quinn, who presides, is a large, white-haired, bespectacled Irish-American, with the dignified look of a priest and the air of a sphinx. His handling of the trial was pronounced masterly at a banquet tendered him some months after by a wealthy Boston club. The friends of the prisoners condemn it for its unfairness. They believe, with a well-known Massachusetts lawyer, that, were it not for Judge Quinn's rulings, there would have been no case to try. As it was, the jury finally chosen departed without his thanks for their long services to the state. This neglect of long-established precedent reflects the court's mind. He evidently was intent on a verdict of guilt, and was piqued because it was not pronounced despite his rulings. The task of securing the jury now begins. Here the first snag was struck, revealing the actual character of the case before the court. This is no ordinary murder trial in which jurors gladly serve. This is a social issue, pregnant with social consequences. As a result, the majority of the venirmen show a reluctance to act. They plead prejudice and opposition to capital punishment. They oppose personal ideas and conscientious scruples to the evidence and the law. They assert that they will be guided by the first to the repudiation of the latter. The court tries in vain to break down this reluctance. He appeals to the prospective jurors to respect and uphold the law, to waive opinion in favor of evidence, to be patriotic and guided only by conscience, approved by God, in the performance of a social duty, one of the highest duties possible to man. But these appeals fail. Though repeated in a variety of ways, some coaxing and persuasive, others scathing and menacing, they availeth not. To the chagrin of the court, now plainly powerless and humiliated, the New England conscience persists in its stubbornness, creating more disregard for law and opponents to capital punishment than a thousand lectures by either anarchists or the advocates of new methods for dealing with capital crimes. The result is an exhaustion of the panel, without seven jurors having been obtained, 
which would enable the court to recruit the remainder from the street, regardless of opinion or scruples. With four jurors only chosen after three days, when it was thought to have the trial well under way, lawyers proclaimed the situation unprecedented. The newspapers so consider and discuss it. It was not only unprecedented, but ominous. Why this condition of affairs? A New England reporter, when asked this question, said of the Van Ayrman, quote, This general strike news has got them frightened. They fear the consequences. They are scared to death. End quote. Quote, Conscience, unquote, says Shakespeare, quote, doth make cowards of us all. Unquote. But it is worth noting how personal and class interests doth make conscience in conformity with themselves. Also, how those interests are affected and determined by other influences. This condition of affairs caused a delay of twelve days in order to call another venire. On October 14th, the court resumed again. This time success marked the efforts to secure a jury. This was partly due to the, quote, God and country, unquote, agitation, which, reacting from the general strike, again nerved New England to a greater solicitude for evidence and law. It was most largely due to the greater percentage of working men willing to serve and acceptable to the defense. Six hundred venirmen in all were examined. The jury secured, under the above circumstances, is as follows. Robert Stillman, Rockport, Massachusetts, foreman, member Carpenters Union. Samuel F. Bond, Lynn, Massachusetts, stockfitter, active unionist. George F. Burgess, Lynn, Massachusetts, Cutters Union, K of L. John N. Carter, Newburyport, Massachusetts, Teamster, Socialist. Willis P. Cresset, Gloucester, Massachusetts, Sailmakers Union. J. J. Duran, Methuen, Massachusetts, Carpenter employed in Union Shop. Daniel J. Dullia, Peabody, Massachusetts, Laborer. George C. Edmonds, Amesbury, Massachusetts, Lampworker, Socialist. Harvey Elliott, Beverly, Massachusetts, Boss Carpenter, Employer of Union Labor. Christian Larson, Haverhill, Massachusetts, Boss Barber, Socialistically Inclined. Edwin S. Martin, Salem, Massachusetts, Carpenter, Car Builder. Fred T. Noyes, Newburyport, Massachusetts, Boss Grocer. To these men belong the honor of the verdict found in this famous trial. With the jury finally impaneled, the trial actually began. The prosecution was able but untenable. It sought to establish individual responsibility for social conditions and for violence engendered by police brutality and invasion of simple rights. Ettore was held to have planned, inspired, and carried on the Lawrence strike, assisted by Giovanniti. Both incited the Italian populace, including Caruso, to violence and murder by word of mouth and the wiles of the agitator. Consequently, in the death of Annie Lapiso, they were accessories before the fact, as they did thus conspire to procure her death. District Attorney Atwill, in his virulent denunciation of Etter as, quote, the little general, unquote, unconsciously expounded Carlyle's theory that great men create great epochs, a view to which the jury did not at all incline, as the results show. The untenable nature of the prosecution was shown in many ways. First, in the attempt to have the jury visit Lawrence, where, amid the display of patriotism exhibited by the, quote, God and country, unquote, agitation, it would be influenced in behalf of the prosecution. 
As the defense insisted on the right of the prisoners to also go there, the attempt was dropped, for the presence of Etter, Giovanniti, and Caruso in Lawrence at the time would be fraught with many perils to, quote, law and order, unquote. Second, in the dates selected by the prosecution. These were January 15th, after Etter's arrival, and January 29th, the day of his arrest, when the strike was not yet ended. Thus the strike was to be made an Etter affair exclusively. It did not take long for the weakness of the prosecution to expose itself. The first three days of the trial were typical. In Solidarity, IWW organ, issue of October 28, 1912, the writer, who was present throughout the trial, summed them up as follows. Quote, Since the delivery of his opening address, the district attorney has summoned some ten or twelve witnesses. These witnesses, with the exception of the first three, who were members and friends of the IWW, made out a case against the men that, under cross-examination by counsel for the defense, either underwent vital change or else was completely destroyed, all to the advantage of Etter, Giovanniti, and Caruso. Such was the first day's testimony that the sheriff of Essex County, who is also a lawyer, is reported to have said, quote, It is a shame to waste the county's money in such proceedings. End quote. This opinion, endorsed also by others, grew on the second and third days, and was quite strong when court adjourned on that day, Friday evening, until next Monday morning. In the two and a half days of testimony taking, nothing in the way of a case was developed against the defendants. The testimony taken under cross-examination shows that the speeches and conversations of Etter and Giovanniti have been distorted, misrepresented, and otherwise adapted to the needs of the prosecution even to the extent of suppressing entirely their most essential features. Witnesses testified that in the preliminary trial they were not asked questions that would elicit the full purport and true meaning of all that was said, nor were they asked, in conference with the district attorney, to give all the information they possessed. On the other hand, some of the witnesses, notably policemen Barry and Gallagher and reporter Joseph A. Donahue, gave more detailed information regarding the alleged incendiary speeches and conversations of Etter and Giovanniti than they had done at the preliminary trial. And they all admitted that, since then, they had been in consultation with District Attorney Atwill on the case, all of which helped to destroy completely the effectiveness of the testimony of the Commonwealth. It would be difficult to give in detail the testimony already taken, but this much may be stated. That the testimony shows, under cross-examination, that speeches and conversations were garbled and lopped off as required, that Lawrence police officers were called into discussion of the case with their superior officers and state police captains Proctor and Flynn, that one of them, Barry, had gone over the case with District Attorney Atwill, that another one, Gallagher, talked with Barry about the case and had consulted newspaper reports in regard to dates and events, that Gallagher was appointed to the police force through the exertions of a salaried employee of the American Woolen Company, and that at the time of said appointment he was in the employ of said company, that Mayor Scanlon suggested the organization of the Strikers Committee in the City Hall speech of January 14th, parenthesis. It was the intention of the prosecution to show that Etter organized and dominated the Strikers Committee in pursuance of the conspiracy to incite to violence, etc., close parenthesis. That Etter was a factor for peace, having, on January 29th, prevented a clash between the militia and a parade of strikers by projecting himself between the two and diverting the course of the latter, that the early morning streetcar-smashing riots, which Etter and Giovanniti are charged with having organized and incited, 
were permitted and tolerated by both the police and the militia, who looked on and took no steps to prevent them. That the rioting attending the Lawrence strike began on January 12th, before Utter's arrival, as a result of the unheralded wage reduction following the inauguration of the 54 Hours, and not on January 15th, following Utter's arrival, and as a result of his and Giovanniti's speeches, that the alleged voluntary conversation of Caruso with Lawrence Police Inspector Vose and State Police Captain Flynn, both of whom discussed the case with Barry, Benoit, and others, shows that he was not at the scene of the murder of Annie Lapiso on the night it was committed. All this, and much more that is favorable to the defense the three days' actual trial shows. The sum total of the three days' trial confirms the original belief that the three men are the victims of a frame-up, because the Lawrence strike was a victory for the working class, whose beneficial results must be nullified by drastic measures. End quote. During the days following, the prosecution's witnesses made many admissions fatal to its case. Officer Johnson admitted invading the rights of the peaceful crowd at Garden and Union Streets on the night of the killing of Annie Lepizzo. He and other officers clubbed men and women on the back when moving. The police and militia got the crowd between them so that they couldn't move as ordered, and then clubbed and bayoneted them for not doing so. Militia Captain Colby testified that the crowd was moving about on his arrival with no evidence of concerted action. The testimony of officers Benoit and Marshall showed that the fatal shot had been fired at Benoit by a man who had a personal grudge against Benoit, and who took advantage of the troublous times to square accounts. In general, the prosecution's witnesses did not inspire confidence and respect. Two of them, Special Officer Silva Moore and Sherman Detective Agency Operator Lacourte, were completely discredited. Court records were produced exposing them as criminals and ex-convicts. The Ben Cardo brothers... Callahan Detective Agency operators, were self-exposed as shady characters, unworthy of belief and fearful of exposure. The Commonwealth had not one witness from among the thousands of strikers and others familiar with events who had heard the alleged incendiary speeches or knew of the alleged conspiracy to procure the commission of murder, all of which was fatal to its case. All that the prosecution lacked, the defense possessed. Its witnesses were in striking contrast to those of the Commonwealth. They brought an air of honesty and decency into the courtroom. The men, women, and children of the mills went on the stand by the dozen to tell the same tale, to wit, that Etter had urged them, quote, to stay away from Canal Street, the police, militia, and mills, and to put their hands in their pockets until the mill owners came to them, as they could not weave cloth with a policeman's club or with a soldier's bayonet, end quote. Testimony was also given regarding the real nature of various statements made by Utter. His, quote, will keep the gun shops busy, unquote, was shown to be dependent on the city authorities granting strikers as well as scabs permits to carry weapons. This grant was not expected. It was requested as a method of protest and publicity against violence by the mill owners' thugs. The reference to the French Revolution grew out of a report that the workers in Lawrence often had only black bread to eat. That, quote, Lawrence will be an unhappy city with no cars to stone, unquote, would be the case if the electrical workers struck as they threatened to do, a fact which Etter had in mind as they had consulted him about it. Other statements that, wrenched from their context, appeared diabolical, were perfectly legitimate and sound when heard in their entirety. Other testimony showed Officer Benoit to be the killer of Annie Lapiso. Giovanniti was also shown to have instructed men in charge of parades to prevent disorder 
and to have personally berated some men who threw snow and ice at the militia. None heard him say that the strikers should, quote, prowl around like wild animals in the night looking for the blood of the police, unquote, but he advised the very contrary. He himself had no recollection of such words, and spurned them as repugnant to his intelligence and nature, and to civilized man in general. Try as district attorney at Will Wood, he could not succeed in trapping or discrediting any of the defense's witnesses. The mill operatives were substantiated in their testimony by social investigators, clergymen, the governor's secretary, Dudley Holman, Max Mitchell, Fred Atto, William Wood's friend, and Horace Wiggins, controller of the American Woolen Company, all of whom testified to Etter's peaceful attitude and the open and above-board workings of the strike committee. Three witnesses, his landlord, his child's godfather, and his wife, helped Caruso to establish a complete alibi. He was at home eating supper when Annie Lopizo was alleged to have been shot by him. It was also shown that he had heard Etter speak but once, then in English, which he did not understand. He had never heard Giovanniti speak at all. Caruso said he was not a member of the IWW, but would join as soon as he got out. But the most important witnesses for the defense were Etter and Giovanniti themselves. Etter was on the stand two whole court days. His wonderful memory recalled every detail of his part in the strike, and gave coherency to all the other testimony by the defense. In the case of both himself and Giovanniti, the examination revealed the social character of the issues before the court. At times, Annie Lepizo was entirely forgotten. Ideas were discussed instead of persons. Opinions were on trial instead of acts. The subjects ranged from labor organization, as represented by the IWW in contrast to the AF of L, to religion, economics, sociology, history, U.S. Constitution and government, American Revolution, socialism, anarchism, sabotage, political and industrial action, passive resistance, general strike, and kindred matters. The district attorney offered in evidence Solidarity, the IWW organ, and St. John's, the IWW history, methods, and structure, a pamphlet which he was compelled to read from cover to cover, advertisements and all. Haywood's general strike and other documents were put in by the prosecution. A handbill advocating violence, and bearing the names of Etter, Giovanniti, and Mazzarelli, was submitted and repudiated as a forgery, such as the evidence proved it to be. The defense put in the proceedings of the first IWW convention, and read therefrom the Chicago Manifesto, the famous document which recites the social causes that produced the formation of the IWW. Society loomed up large in all this, while Annie Lepizo was forgotten. Etter gave many definitions in his testimony. Said he, quote, The program of the industrialist is part of the general socialist program. The socialist political movement concerns itself with political matters. The industrial union movement with industrial matters. One is organized on the basis of industry and productive workers, the other according to ideas and political boundaries. The ultimate object is the same. End quote. Etter also declared that two principles guide labor. One is the theory of demolition, the other of construction, in the matter of property. In his opinion, the industrial unionist offers the only solution of a peaceful nature for labor problems that has yet been devised. Asked if he was an anarchist, Etter answered, quote, No. End quote. 
asked to define the difference between anarchy and industrial unionism, Eder answered, quote, One is the philosophy of individualism, the other of collectivism, end quote. He said further in answer to questions, quote, The anarchist looks upon social progress as emanating from the individual. The collectivist looks upon progress as a result of social efforts and experiences. The individualist regards all social changes from the standpoint of their effects on the individual, the collectivist for what they mean to the general community. Our idea and our program is to organize the workers in the same way that they are organized in producing wealth. Through the power and intelligence that is generated in the workers through solidarity, there will naturally evolve a state of society where those who do the work will appropriate the product of their efforts. The AFFL organizes according to trades, irrespective of whether the workers are employed in the same industry or not. It accepts the present system as a finality. The IWW groups them according to industries. It regards present society as one of the stages in social progress. End quote. Again, Etter said, in answer to a question, quote, I looked upon the IWW as one of the agencies involved in the evolution and progress of industry and society. The IWW aims to organize the workers on the industrial field, to train them in their unions, and to develop them through their experiences to learn how to administer industry and manage affairs for themselves. In the ratio that the new society is generated in the shell of the old, naturally the old society will gradually disappear and the new will take its place. End quote. Ettore reaffirmed his conviction that only through the solidarity of labor within industry could society evolve in a peaceful manner. He believes industry will evolve industrial ideas and government. The cross-examination of Ettore left him, quote, master, unquote, as the headlines of the Salem News proclaimed. His answers to the district attorney were direct and unflinching. For instance, Atwell asked, quote, Did you, with all your study of history, especially of United States history, and with all your stock of general information, tell these strikers from abroad that this government is a government of, by, and for capitalists? End quote. To which Etter replied, quote, I did, not in spite of my knowledge, but because of it. End quote. Then Atwill would flare up with a, quote, Mr. Utter, did you not say so-and-so to the strikers then? End quote. To which Etter would reply, not the least intimidated, quote, Yes, and I say the same now. End quote. Etter, via his strike speeches, which he repeated in extensio, was enabled to get before the jury the story of the dynamite plot and all other matters excluded by the court. Giovanniti was equally as courageous as Etter, though perhaps even more soft-spoken. He used the district attorney's activity to illustrate how a man in a movement may be militant without necessarily being violent, and, in other ways, more direct, complimented his persecutor. He was especially good in his definitions of direct action and sabotage. He defined direct action as the conscious action of workers themselves, to secure gains directly from the capitalists without the intervention or aid of third parties. He illustrated, by means of the eight-hour day put on the statute books by legislation, only to remain unenforceable or to be declared unconstitutional, and that secured and established in the shop by the workers themselves. Sabotage was defined by Giovanniti as the willful reduction of output or deterioration of goods by labor in accordance with the wages received. Quote, Sabotage, unquote, asserted Giovanniti, quote, is practiced in its more comprehensive sense, more largely by capital than by labor. 
End quote. But the district attorney objected. He only wanted to know Giovanniti's conception of the word. He was not interested in how the capitalists sabotaged society. Quote, the jury, unquote, said Giovanniti on another occasion under cross-examination, might think sabotage was dynamiting, which might be your definition, Mr. District Attorney, but it is not mine. End quote. All the prisoners made an excellent impression in their own behalf. In the rebuttal, when Mayor Scanlon was on the stand, this contract, exposing his shameful part in promoting disorder in Lawrence, was introduced in the case. Quote, Boston, January 17, 1912. This contract, entered into between the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts, through their mayor and board of aldermen in the first part, and the Sherman Detective Agency of Boston, Massachusetts in the second part, is to commence at the time our operative reaches Lawrence to take up the work, and is to extend for a period of seven days, with the privilege of renewal by the party of the first part under the same articles of this contract. The second party of the contract agrees to assign on the matter in question, parenthesis, namely the Lawrence Mill Strike, and parenthesis, an Italian-speaking operative, able to take shorthand notes of either Italian or English conversations, and capable of doing, quote, roping, unquote, if deemed advisable. The party of the first part, in consideration of the services of the party of the second part, agrees to pay them at the rate of $8 per day for each operative and the necessary disbursements incurred. Said disbursements, however, not to exceed $3 per day, unless authorized in writing by the party of the first part, the disbursements to include car fares, telephones, meals, and room hire when away from Boston, cash spent with subjects, and any other incidental expense absolutely necessary in order to bring about the desired results. Bills are to be rendered by the party of the second part weekly and to be paid by party of the first part within 30 days from date of bill. Sherman Detective Agency. Signed, per John F. Sherman, General Manager. Signed, Michael A. Scanlon, Mayor. Cornelius F. Lynch, Alderman. Paul Hannigan, Alderman, Robert S. Maloney, Alderman, end quote. This contract is self-condemnatory. Quote, roping, unquote, means to inveigle by means of incitement or provocation. In other words, the mayor of Lawrence upheld the law by hiring agents to lead others to break it in order to trap innocent persons. Detective Lacarte, exposed in open court as a criminal and ex-convict, was employed under this infamous contract. Sherman had to sue for his dirty money. Scanlon evidently doesn't believe there is honor even among lawbreakers. With the testimony all in, the defense began to sum up. Ex-Judge Sisk made a purely legal analysis of the evidence against Caruso that was thorough, complete, and able in every respect. He naturally laid most emphasis on the alibi established for his client by means of his luminous, elevated, and masterly abilities. Mr. Peters made an address that would have delighted the believer in economic determinism. In his talk, he showed how wealth influences conduct, how corporate wealth especially tends to make public officials, especially the police, subservient to corporations, with all their power and influence, and opposed to the laborers, who have only poverty and degradation, how this tendency makes public men overzealous, unconsciously in their own interests, as against the interests of the poor and powerless. Mr. Peters was especially good in his declaration that, quote, if the strikers had been actuated by violence, they could have wiped Lawrence off the map, end quote. He said the wonder was, in view of the incompetency displayed by the police, not that there had been so much, but so little disorder. He argued that this spoke well for Etter and Giovanniti. 
Mr. Peters called attention to the disinterested character and culture of his client, Giovanniti, and made a rousing appeal in the interests of justice and progress, all the time paying strict and minute attention to the evidence of the prosecution. He said the trial was a result of a conflict between capital and labor and should be so considered. Mr. Mahoney dwelt on the humanitarian motives of both Etter and Giovanniti, especially of Etter. He referred to his abilities as compared with his remuneration, and referred to the great impression professional contact with Etter made on him, an impression of loftiness and idealism. Mr. Mahoney also made some references to the social character of the trial and the work of the IWW. He especially pointed out the conditions that surrounded the inception of the strike, together with Etter's masterly efforts in handling the latter, and, as if to anticipate District Attorney Atwell, he made an appeal for free speech, free assemblage, and free organization in the name of the flag and the glorious traditions of Massachusetts that was impressive from a Fourth of July standpoint. Taken all in all, it must be said that the three lawyers were able, conscientious, eloquent, but lacking in depth, grasp, and courage. They knew not the basis of their own profession. They kept too near the present. They were not like Ferdinand LaSalle, who knew law not only to practice it, but to make it an engine of progress, and who was not only a lawyer, but a revolutionizer of law conceptions, and a forceful factor in the making of law, because of his stupendous grasp of the evolution and significance of law in the development of classes and society. They did not dwell primarily on the social character of the charges, and there they failed. But then they did well despite it all. It remained for the defendants themselves to succeed where their attorneys had fallen short. Right here let us take our hats off to Judge Quinn. He did one thing during the trial that was of great value. He permitted the defendants to speak for themselves, reviving an old custom to that end. Judge Quinn had ruled out offers of proof by the defense tending to show a counter-conspiracy to do the very things charged against the defendants. He prevented Etter or attorney Fred Moore from being heard when the prosecution had rested its case, and when Etter intended to let the case go to the jury on the merits of the prosecution. He gauged witnesses who could tell about the dynamite plant. He overruled objections palpably just to the defense, and otherwise revealed an obstinate prejudice against the defendants which manifested itself to the end. He only relented after District Attorney Atwill had summed up for the prosecution, when he allowed Etter and Giovanniti to reply to him, each in an epoch-making speech. For this we thank Judge Quinn, though we condemn him for all else. End of chapter 5, part 1